Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. I'm still hanging on. I have a professional conference this week. Um, It won't be quite the same without seeing everyone in person, but I'm still looking forward to it. And because it's virtual, the timing is great for me because it doesn't interfere with my normal morning schedule. I live in the Eastern time zone and everything is in the afternoon because then it won't be too early for the people on the West Coast. (laughs) Anyway, today we have another tragedy from Euripides. We're back to his more usual tragic, tragedies no happy ending today um but you probably would have figured that out from the myth being retold it's a it's a different take on oedipus i mean the bones are all still there um the whole killing his father and marrying his mother thing um but it it does not assume the same ending as we see in sophocles uh and it's it's not quite the same story that we saw in aeschylus's seven against thebes uh, today's play is the Phoenician women, or uh, Phoenicae in Greek, or Phoenicae uh, in Latin. Um, pardon my accent in both of those languages. <laughs> so, so you might see it with um, any of those titles, depending on the translation you're using. Um, I'm working from the old E.P. Coleridge translation today, and he uses the Latin title Phoenicae. Uh, go figure. Um, other sources that I've used called it the Phoenician women and I speak English so that's easier for me to say so that's what I'm calling it Uh, we only have a few of Euripides plays left to go so this is from pretty late in his career um, premiered probably around 410 BCE give or take a year Um, it was in the midst of the Peloponnesian War and that probably did influence some of his interpretation of this part of the Oedipus myth. Um, The events that we'll see most closely align with what we saw in Aeschylus's Seven Against Thebes. Um, So it's set after the events that we saw in Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, um, but before Oedipus at Colonus and Antigone. Um, And it presumes a somewhat different ending to the Oedipus Rex part of the story um, than what we saw in Sophocles. So, you may think you know what to expect at the start of this play. You'll be wrong. Uh, So be prepared for a decent amount of, wait, wait, what? Um, The play, of course, is set in Thebes because that's where Oedipus was king. He's still there. And so is Jocasta. Uh, remember how she died at the end of the Sophocles play? Yeah, not in this version of the story. So she's still alive. Oedipus still blinded himself, but Jocasta didn't kill herself. Yeah, spoiler alert. Uh, so we have the whole Oedipus clan. Oedipus, Jocasta, Antigone, Polynices, and Eteocles. And of course, Creon, Jocasta's brother, um, who we remember as the king in Antigone, right? A new character is Creon's son, uh, Menesis, and and of course we have Tiresias, you know, you can't have a Theban tragedy without our blind prophet. Um, then there's the usual assortment of unnamed servants and messengers, um, and our chorus is comprised of the titular Phoenician women. So what's a group of Phoenician women doing in Thebes? Uh, well, they were on a pilgrimage to Delphi. Um, and I'll go into more about this kind of odd selection of the chorus later because um, it does it's odd I no denying that 
So you should remember your basic Oedipus myth. Um, The oracle said he'd kill his father and Mary's mother. And that's what he wound up doing through a variety of, shall we say, misadventures. Um, When he found out what he'd done, he gouged his eyes out. His sons made a deal to take turns being the king. But that hasn't quite gone according to plan. And that is about the point in the story where this play picks up. So I think... That makes it a good point for a break before we go over the plot. The play opens in front of the palace in Thebes, which is a familiar location to us, and Jocasta enters. She introduces herself. Um, Her brother is Creon. She's married to Laius, or, you know, she was. Um, And they didn't have children, so they went to Delphi to ask for help. And Apollo told them that if they have a son, he'll kill his father and all hell will break loose after that. Well, one night Laius got drunk and Jocasta got pregnant, and sure enough, the baby was a boy. So they gave the baby to a shepherd to expose, but someone found the baby and gave him uh, to Polybus's wife, and she raised him as if he were her own. But somehow, after he'd grown up, he learned that his parents weren't his birth parents, so he went off to Delphi to find out who his birth parents were. At the same time, Laius went to Delphi to find out if the son they'd exposed was dead. And Laius and Oedipus ran into each other on the road, and... Laius lost the game of chicken that they played. Now, after Laius died, there was a sphinx holding siege over Thebes. And Creon announced that whoever defeated the sphinx would get to marry Jocasta, because women are prizes. Um, And Oedipus guessed the riddle and killed the sphinx, and married Jocasta and became king. And they had two sons, Ateocles and Polynices, and two daughters, Antigone, a name picked by Jocasta, and Ismene, a name picked by Oedipus. I don't know if that's really an important detail, but Jocasta seems to think that it is. And then Oedipus learned that he'd married his mother, so he gouged his eyes out, and now he's being held prisoner in the palace so that hopefully everyone will just forget the whole incest thing. And he spends his time cursing his now-grown sons who ordered this captivity. Um, It's a very specific curse about splitting the house in two. Ateocles and Polynices were so worried this curse might come true that they agreed to voluntary exile. They'd they'd take turns. One year, Ateocles would rule and Polynices would live in exile, and the next year they'd switch, and so on and so forth. Only, Ateocles took the throne and decided that he didn't like that plan anymore. So now, Polynices is in permanent exile, and he's been living in Argos, where he married Adrastus' daughter, But now he's brought an army to claim his right. And after that very lengthy prologue, Jocasta exits. An old servant enters on the roof of the palace. He speaks to Antigone, who is still inside. He's keeping watch on the approaching army. There's no one else around, though, so it's safe for her to come and see for herself. Antigone enters. She and the servant talk about all of the assembled leaders outside the walls. So do you remember the really long section in Seven Against Thebes when we learn all about all of the warriors. Uh, Yeah, it's like that, only significantly shorter. (laughs) Um, Once they've talked about all seven of the captains, they go back downstairs into the palace. The chorus enters. They've been sent by Loxias from Phoenicia to serve at Apollo's temple in Delphi. 
and they've stopped at Thebes on their way. Only now they're stuck here because of the war going on outside. And since they are descended from Io, just like the people of Thebes, they're, they're family, right? So, so the sorrows on the people of Thebes also hurt, hurt the women in the chorus, you know, kind of on that family level. Um, Polynices enters. He's a little concerned that he was admitted into the city so easily, but of course he stops and chats with the chorus. They introduce themselves and he reciprocates. The chorus calls his, for his mother, telling her that her son is home. Jocasta enters. She tells Polynices that she's mourned for him. She then talks about Oedipus. He, he alternates between trying to kill himself, cursing his sons, and weeping. And then she bemoans the fact that she didn't even get to go to her son's wedding and do all of the appropriate mother-of-the-groom tasks. Polynices asks after his sisters, but Jocasta doesn't really want to talk about it. She does want to talk about him, though. He gives the whole story of how he met his wife and how he assembled his army. The chorus announces that Ateocles is coming, and he enters. Jocasta acts as mediator in an attempted peace negotiation. Polynices says that he's ready to send his army home. He, he just wants Ateocles to hold up his end of the original plan and take turns with the whole ruling thing. He just wants to come home. And be king. But only for a year. And then every other year after that. Like they'd planned before he left in the first place. Ateocles doesn't care. He's king now and he kind of likes it. He has no plans to change. He doesn't see any reason he should give up power now that he has it. Jocasta doesn't get it. She lectures him about equality and justice, and oh, I'm using an old translation that's in the public domain, so I can quote to my heart's content. Um, bear with me. I'm giving you a big chunk of this monologue because I love it. It is better, my son, to honor equality who always joins friend to friend, city to city, allies to allies. For equality is naturally lasting among men. But the less is always in opposition to the greater and begins the dawn of hatred. For it is equality that has set up for man measures and divisions of weights and has determined numbers. Night's sightless eye and radiant sun proceed upon their yearly course on equal terms, and neither of them is envious when it has to yield. Though both sun and night are servants for mortals, you will not be content with your fair share of your heritage and give the same to him? Then where is justice? Why do you honor to excess tyranny, a prosperous injustice? Why do you think so much of it? Admiring glances are to be prized? No, that is an empty pleasure. Or do you want to have many troubles from the many riches in your house? What advantage is it? The name only. For the wise find what suffices to be enough. Oh my, this speech is so relevant as I am writing this. Put a pin in that. For now, suffice it to say, I love this speech. Ateocles says that there's no point in talking anymore. He tells Polynices to leave Thebes or die. The brothers argue for a while longer, and Jocasta tries to get them to stop. Finally, Polynices declares that he will kill Ateocles and become the ruler of Thebes before he storms off. Ateocles, needing to get the last word, shouts after him to just leave. <laughs> the chorus sings about Cadmus and how he killed Ares' dragon and sowed the dragon's teeth, which grew into an army, which is like a whole nother myth that um, I'm sure we'll encounter in another source. 
Ateocles tells one of his attendants to go fetch Creon, uh, but Creon enters before the servant gets a chance. He'd been looking for Ateocles anyway. They discuss the forces assembled outside and how best to repel the invaders. Ateocles says they should still consult Tiresias, and he'll send uh, Menesus to fetch him. Ateocles and his attendants exit. The chorus sings another depressing song about war and strife. Tiresias enters. This time, he's accompanied by his daughter instead of some random boy. Um, so she serves as that seeing-eye child um, for Tiresias. She leads him to Creon. Um, no surprise. Tiresias has bad news. Uh, Menesis needs to be sacrificed to save Thebes. Uh, Ares is still mad about that dragon killing that the chorus sang about earlier. Um, and Menesis is the only pure enough descendant of Cadmus. Haman would have been the first choice, but since he's engaged to Antigone, he's not pure enough to be suitable anymore because he's going to get married. Um, go figure. Tiresias leaves Cadmus with an ultimatum. Sacrifice Menesis or sacrifice Thebes. Menesis enters as Tiresias exits. Now, Creon has no problem making the decision. He'll sacrifice Thebes. What kind of a monster, <coughs> Agamemnon, <coughs> would sacrifice his own child? He tells Menesis to leave, to go as far away as, as Thesprodia. That will save him from this curse. Creon exits to pull together the money for Menesis uh, for his exile. And as soon as his dad is gone, Menesis tells the chorus that he's not going to do as told. He thinks the decision is easy, too. And Thebes is more important. He announces his intention to sacrifice himself, and then he exits. The chorus sings a lament. A messenger enters, and he calls for Jocasta. She enters. The messenger reports that the war is still going. Uh, Polyne Polynices and Ateocles are still alive. For now. Uh, Menesis, though, eh, not, not so much. He climbed to the roof and killed himself in front of everybody. Uh, not that it did much good. Uh, the messenger then goes into detail on what's happened at each of the seven gates. As for Polynices and Ateocles, they've agreed to single combat, mano a mano. And having his news delivered, uh, having delivered his news in a very long monologue, the messenger exits. Jocasta calls for Antigone, and she enters. Jocasta explains the news about Polynices and Ateocles, and the two women run off to try and stop the duel. The chorus sings another lament. Um, Creon enters. His attendants carry Menesis' body. Creon mourns his son and then sees a different messenger coming. This messenger enters, and he, he gets to the point quickly, sharing the news that Polynices and Ateocles are both dead. It gets worse. Jocasta's dead, too. She and Antigone got there too late, mostly. Um, Polynices and Ateocles weren't quite dead when their mother got there, but they were almost dead. Um, so they were still able to reach out to her, and Polynices was able to ask to be buried there at home with, with his family. Um, and then they died. Um, and then Jocasta used one of their swords to kill herself. Um, the battle continued after this, but Antigone was able to slip back into the city with the dead, and the messenger exits. The chorus sings yet another lament as Antigone enters along with the aforementioned bodies. She calls out for her father. 
Oedipus enters, and she tells him what has happened. And even though Oedipus totally cursed his sons, he's still sad that they've died, and that his wife or mother is also dead. Creon tells everyone to stop wailing. Now that Eteocles and Polynices are dead, he's in charge, and he wants Oedipus gone. As we saw in Sophocles' Antigone, Antigone and Creon then get into an argument over whether or not Polynices is to be buried. She even threatens to kill Haman on their wedding night if she isn't allowed to perform burial rites um, for both of her brothers. Oedipus says farewell to his sons and then announces that he will wander until he dies, and Antigone insists that she will go with him even if it means breaking off um, her engagement to Haman. Uh, they exit, and the play ends. Okay. <laughs> I wrote most of this episode the day after a certain president was impeached for the second time. Um, and I got to the part about how Eteocles doesn't want to hold up his end of the bargain because he simply doesn't want to, because it's good to be king, and oh, oof, uh, relevant much. Just in case you needed a reminder on the importance of the humanities, here it is. Um. Yeah. Oh, I mean, so I'd read the play, but then when I was writing the summary and got back to that speech of Joe Costas and I was rereading it as I was writing the summary going, this is, this is today. This is like right now that we're talking about. Oh my goodness. Anyway, um, one of the things uh, that stands out to me overall though, is that everything in the Oedipus myth comes back to trying to avoid fate, which also seems kind of relevant today. I mean, why does a certain president want to stay in office? And it could have something to do with the fact that as soon as he's out of office, there are going to possibly be so many charges against him for a variety of crimes that have nothing to do with being president. Um, back to, but we're talking about Oedipus, right? Um, why, why did Oedipus wind up killing his father? Um, in part, he was trying to avoid killing his father, right? Uh, why do Eteocles and Polynices wind up killing each other? Uh, they came up with a plot to avoid a situation in which they might kill each other. The whole family is cursed because of how they work to avoid fate. Um, and you do have to wonder what would have happened if we go back to the very beginning and if Laius hadn't been so scared by the oracle back when Oedipus was born. Um, so if if Oedipus had never been exposed because Laius was afraid that his son would grow up to kill him, would his son have actually grown up to kill him? How much of what happens to them is fate, is actually fate as opposed to free will, the free will they exercise in trying to prevent what they have been told is their fate. All right, I said I'd come back to the chorus. They are, sacrifice is too strong of a word, um, but they are gifts for Apollo. That's why they're on their way to Delphi. And I said that they were on a pilgrimage earlier, and they, they really aren't. Um, a pilgrimage implies that you're going to go home afterwards, and they're not. They're, they're, they've been dedicated to the god. They are going to Delphi to work at the temple for the rest of their lives. Maybe they'll be lucky and they'll become uh, the, new, the new Pythian oracle um 
I'd say it's kind of a cushy job. I don't know. You got to get high all the time, whether that was a good thing or not. Um, young women apparently um, tended to OD a lot on the job. So uh, eventually they just had old older women who apparently didn't, they, I don't know, they had higher tolerance for whatever the drugs they, they inhale, inhaled as they uh, gave these cryptic, cryptic oral calls. Anyway, that we're not talking about Delphi in this episode. <laughs> Yet I've gone off on a tangent on it. Um, so, so the chorus, they're, they're off to be servants at the temple. Um, but now they're, they're stuck in Thebes, um, which is different than what we've seen in any other chorus. Because the chorus isn't from Thebes. They aren't, they aren't friends of any of the characters that, that we meet. They're not, you know, Antigone's servants, or they're not, they're not the neighboring princesses or they they are not related other than through Io to anybody in Thebes. Um, they are literally passing through when the famous Seven Against Thebes show up. Um, and this is particularly interesting when we put this play in the time in which it premiered. Um, so as I mentioned, it was during the Peloponnesian War. And we can see in the course an allegory for the people who became collateral damage to the hostilities between Athens and Sparta. They have no dog in this fight, but they are caught in the middle of it. Um, another big topic that we could discuss in this play is gender dynamics. I found multiple papers that take this focus. Um, where does the strength lie? Is it with the men or with the women? I, Sophocles' Antigone is pretty awesome. But the Antigone we see here is even more powerful in some ways. Um, she first presents herself most properly. We first see her on the roof, which isn't exactly outside of the palace. I mean, she's still in the palace, right? She's just on, on top of it. She hasn't left the palace walls. And she's not alone. She has an old slave to chaperone her. It's, it's most proper. But by the end, she is standing up to Creon and Oedipus. Oedipus is happy to go wander by himself, but she won't stand for it. She breaks her engagement and insists that she will accompany Oedipus to Colonus. Um, but the, uh, probably the, the great beauty of this play um, comes from the parents. So we see Jocasta and her children, and we see Creon and, and one of his sons, Haman, does not appear in, in this play, even though we hear about him. Um, and it's kind of surprising that Creon is so willing to sacrifice Thebes if it means his son will live, which is rather refreshing given what we frequently see in Greek myth. Now, of course, there's a gender issue here too. I mean, if Creon were told to sacrifice his daughter, would he have done the same? Um, so, you know, is he like Agamemnon in that respect? If Agamemnon had been told to sacrifice Orestes, would he have done the same as opposed to being told to sacrifice Iphigenia? Um, I, d I, don't, I don't know. Because again, you know that's not that's not what happens. So, um, but we do see we do see this this love in Creon for for his son and how that his son is more important to him than anything else um, than ruling, which is which again gives us a, this difference between him and Ateocles. That's not Creon doesn't take the throne at the end because he wants to be king. It's he's left. There's there's no other male left to to rule. So he's he's taking the taking the crown um but he would have been happy to let Thebes fall if it if it meant keeping his family alive um and and so in both Creon and Jocasta we see parents who love their children 
um, who want them to be safe and well and who would give up everything for them. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's just kind of nice to see, to see that in a medium that has so many dysfunctional family relationships. <laughs> so what, what do you think of the Phoenician women? Is this a better version of the Oedipus myth than we've read before? Please pop over to the blog and share your thoughts. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. Join me on Patreon. I'm there as Triumvir Clio. The URL is also in the show notes. On Wednesday, we will finish our reading of The Odyssey with book 24 and a final wrap-up. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.